Welcome to another episode of Disrupting Privilege Conversations Around Race and Health. I want to introduce my co-host today, Dr. Summer Dudney. Dr. Dudney is a GYN uh, oncologist with Rush University Medical Center, uh, and she has uh, been a co-host for me on a number of episodes of Disrupting Privilege. Um, our guest today uh, is Dr. Brandy Jackson. She's the co-founder of the Institute for Racial and Cultural Healing. Dr. Ja- Jackson and I were introduced to a mutual friend, uh, Barbara Hoffman from Heartland Alliance. Uh, Dr. Dudney and I did an episode of Disrupting Privilege with a man named Ed Stellan, who is uh, at Heart- Heartland Alliance Health. And uh, when uh, Barbara heard the episode, she immediately called me and said, you've got to interview Brandy Jackson. So uh, that's how this all came about. Uh, Dr. Dooney, do you care to say a few words to our audience before we get started? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're so, again, so happy to be here and honored um, and also to be with Dr. Jackson today. I um, just to let you know a little background about myself, I am um, work very closely with the Equal Hope organization, um, working on trying to eliminate cervical cancer in Chicagoland, um, obviously even in the U.S. So that's one of our um, one of our main things that I'm involved with. Great. Well, um, Dr. Jackson is the uh, practicing psychiatry physician serving as the chief behavioral officer at the Near North Health in Chicago. She's a co-founder of the Institute of Racial and Cultural Healing and an advocate for rights of women and other under-resourced and members of under-resourced communities. Dr. Jackson earned her bachelor's in human uh, development from Cornell University and received her medical doctorate from Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine. Uh, She is a former Public Voices Fellow who has been uh, featured on a number of different uh, multimedia outlets, including MSNBC, NBC Nightly News, the Associated Press, as well as the Kelly Clarkson Show and the Ellen DeGeneres Show. Uh, Dr. Jackson, welcome. And you care to share with our audience a little bit about yourself and your background? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my, like you said, my name is Dr. Brandy Jackson, and I am, like so many people, trying to make sense of this post-pandemic world as a practicing psychiatry psychiatrist and healthcare executive in Chicago serving folks who come from all kinds of backgrounds, um, folks regardless of their ability to pay. So that's a privilege and an experience. <laughs> yeah. Tell me a little bit about uh, the, the Institute for Racial and Cultural Healing. It's a, a unique name, and I think you've had a couple of iterations that have gotten you to this place. Share with us the story of the Institute. Absolutely. Um, Right at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my twin sister and I, Dr. Brittany James, who is a family medicine physician in Chicago, we felt a strong urge to create an organization that was focused on racial health equity. Uh, so the original iteration of our, <clears throat> of our group was called the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine, I am for short. And we were primarily an organizing body and had some successes really bringing some challenging, uh, tough questions to the American Medical Association, had some support um, getting basically accountability um, out of that particular organization. Um, And when the pandemic started to come to its next phase, we wanted our work to reflect the way that we have evolved as healers 
to understand that health equity is not just about race, of course, although as a black woman, race is at the top of our minds, of course, um, but wanting our umbrella to span further and to fighting against all forms of human oppression. And of course, um, having worked at a nonprofit that is focused on the LGBTQ community over the last couple of years, I really had the opportunity to see how that particular community um, is challenged in this post-pandemic world. So all of that meant that we transitioned from a strict anti-racism in medicine focus to one, talking about what we're for, which is healing, and focusing on uh, fighting all forms of cultural oppression. So now we are the Institute for Racial and Cultural Healing. Okay. I love yeah, that's... Go ahead. That is no, that's 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 amazing that you guys have done that work. Um, and I'm just I'm again just so impressed by everything. What what have um, uh, especially I guess kind of during the pandemic and then after the pandemic, um, how has the institute changed? How, how have you had to kind of um, rework? You know what kind of started it and then how it's now changed now post that we're slowly coming out of this. Um, what are some things that you're you've seen change and what are some things you're looking forward to? I think when we started this, I was meeting so right in the midst of 2020 um, when we started the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine. And we kind of were both this sort of, I think it was more of a Black Panther, like fight mode, like we're going to get through this like battle cry. Uh, my sister is an amazing digital organizer and, you know, really led the charge on a lot of stuff that was about fighting and fighting for. And that's the struggle we knew uh, as black women physicians. As things evolved and we saw how so many people were affected by the pandemic, people who felt that they had been in a stable position before found themselves suddenly on unstable footing. And I, as a psychiatrist, I saw that the demographic of people coming in for assistance, for deep depression, um, for serious mental illness, it changed the folks who typically had a nine to five, it changed it. And so we started meeting my twin sister and I, we started thinking about where the movement needed to go or where we felt it needed to go once the disaster was over. And we understood it needed to be about healing rather than fighting, or at least that's how we felt. We, um, because he, for those of us who were fighting and fighting and fighting and have been fighting, um, it's exhausting. And so, Really, the switch came out of the necessity to heal the healers themselves and say, I, 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 I love the fight, the fight works, but also how do I sustain myself in this work? And that has to mean focusing actually on healing rather than fighting. That's really fascinating. And, and you know, I love that just this, the, the optics of we were anti, we were talking about what we were against, and now we're looking at what we're for. And, uh, you know, there's so many areas in our society, our culture, where people just have a hard time saying what they're for. They're, they know what they're against, but to, to, to be able to make that shift is, is rather powerful. You know, one of the things that really is kind of fascinating for me is, you know, when I joined Equal Hope, we were a relatively small organization uh, focused on breast cancer. Uh, Dr. Dudney is, is on our board and, and had... Um, come on board and push us into the cervical cancer arena as well. We were looking for a way to expand the successful platform we had in breast cancer 
uh, uh, screenings, diagnosis, and treatment. You know, after we had gotten data that demonstrated this model really worked, and uh, we, with with Dr. Dooney's push. Um, uh, included cervical cancer into the mix. And then the pandemic struck. So I joined in March of 2020 and then the pandemic struck. I was in the office for two weeks and then we went remote. And I like to say we were a voice crying in the wilderness for a long time. We were fighting an uphill battle where people said, well, the reason there are disparities is because of genetics. So the reason we're there are disparities is because of lifestyle. And all of a sudden you're looking at the pandemic and you're seeing this you know hugely disproportionate impact across black and brown communities and all of a sudden what we had been saying for 13 years was now center stage and so you know it, it it's really shifted and we're a very different organization today as a result of that um, you know i think society has responded both the private found uh, private foundation world the public world you know we've received funding and support and have you know measurables that we're, we're delivering to um the chicago public department of public health and to the cdc foundation you know which has really been kind of a seismic shift in the way in which our society looks at at uh, sort of health equity and public health how do you see your role as a healer now evolving uh, as we're coming out more or less coming out of this for me it's been a deep dive into how to heal myself first and foremost um, from the trauma of treating folks for trauma while experiencing the same trauma that they are traumatized by and so it was kind of my mind folded on itself a little bit um, and doing it while in a leadership position and having the ability to make decisions that affect so many people it was a lot to carry <laughs> and when I looked at all the folks in especially community medicine, and I was so inspired and am so inspired, and I found myself asking who's taking care of us now that the immediate disaster is over. And so for me, I feel one of my unique contributions is to offer education, consultation, coaching to especially executives who are trying to figure out how to keep giving while balancing themselves. Yeah. And then the Institute for Racial and Cultural Healing is really focused on creating education um, that can be consumed online. And we have a number of projects coming down the pipe here where we're, hope we're hoping to offer organizations really a lens by which to view this post-pandemic era. So it's sort of like that academic headspace, but also that heart space of making sure we move forward um, with compassion for ourselves as well as other people. Self-care is a, an important, important step for any one of us. And to be attuned to your own psychological makeup and what's going on with the pressures we have at work and in the world is, is crucial. Absolutely. We're not that good at it for us to be healers, most of us. <laughs> I'll be honest. I'm speaking yeah, for myself. Yeah, no, no. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've gotten so much better, but it's more so been out of necessity. I started a meditation practice and kept it regular for the first time during this pandemic. And someone very wise once told me the only time you do that, the only time you meditate every day is when it becomes too painful not to. And yeah. I can say that that became true for me. Yeah, it's it's very interesting in our in our being a um, medical professional or a medical professional in general, or, you know, um, any sort of, um, provider that's really historically, even relatively recent has not been part of our training at all. Um, it wasn't even remotely mentioned when I was training and I'm sure the same is for 
for you, Dr. Jackson. Um, it just wasn't wasn't part of the conversation, um, you know, That's and great. taking care of you know providers yourself, and you can't. And then we saw the the pandemic hit and the just the extreme burnout, right? Of 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 nurses, of and we're seeing the, all the repercussions of that now. Um, and it's just it's it's something we need to work on as a, as a, as a profession, as a society. Um, and so, and I think people are realizing that too. And the turnover, I mean, when I look at the attrition, I think that's what's most staggering to me is how people are leaving healthcare. People have, it's almost like this feeling of an exhale. Like we got through the pandemic, we got our patients through. And now I know so many of us in especially uh, community medicine are having trouble recruiting talent to come in and continue to work sort of in the trenches. And something both of you have probably encountered in ways that um, yeah, I can barely even possibly understand is the the arrogance um, that you've had to confront. I know, Dr. Dudney, as a, a female surgeon, you've had to confront you know people that didn't think you should be in in the surgery room, you know, in the operating room, and so that is, you know, confronting that reality has just got to be a constant battle for both of you. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. That's historically has kind of been um, part of the, it's been part of the culture and what we have to do is, you know, recognize that, that that's not, shouldn't, should not be part of the culture and then, and then change that. Um, and, and I think it has been slow to come, but it is, it is slowly coming. And I think, People recognizing um, that it exists is obviously usually the first first step before you know for sexism and then obviously for other forms racism etc. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I could agree more. I'm always hopeful, of course, in the forward progress. I, I look to history, look to the shoulders of giants that I stand mm. upon, and get motivation there because things have certainly changed. But to this day, to this moment, I find the hardest thing is sort of feeling like I need to explain that I am an expert or have it. What's the equivalent of when someone is explaining your own profession to you in a room and you're sitting there like you're getting that wrong, that wrong. So it's, it's strange because I think what, before I was a physician, I would think, oh, those are experts. But now I can be Dr. Brady Jackson. I can be chief behavioral health officer. I could be in all these fancy media outlets and still walk into a room and have my just basic intelligence question, not even within my realm, but I mean my basic intelligence as a person. And I think of all the cloaks of privilege I carry, um, if that still happens, that that still happens, what of all the brilliant people who don't carry title or rank the way I do? And it's sad for healthcare because there's a lot of brilliant people at all levels of leadership. Well, what Summer said just a minute ago, we are making progress. Uh, we probably take two steps forward and one step backwards. But, uh, you know, as as we welcome a more diverse, you know, up and coming body of practitioners um, and these voices continue to be heard. And I can't imagine how exhausting it is for both of you to have to confront this nonsense um, over and over again. Um, but for the most part, you're, you're, it's falling on some receptive ears and, and changes are happening. Uh, you know, uh, Brandy, you and I spoke earlier, and one of the things I found really interesting, and you, you'd alluded when you introduced yourself on the you know, earlier in the podcast, uh, that some of your work was really focused on the AMA and, and the fallout when, when uh, their editor um, 
made really off the base, you know, mistaken, mistaken comments about racism in healthcare. Um, and there was a huge fallout from that, which led to his, his either re his uh, retiring or stepping down or getting fired or whatever. Um, but you, you guys did something in response to that. I believe you published all of the previous encounters with him addressing sexism, addressing racism, addressing um, where you looked at this long history. Because we know, I mean, we all make mistakes when we're having conversations. We might say something, but when it's deeply seated, it's not a mistake. It's an inherent problem, and and, and there's a, there's a track record. So talk a little bit about that when you when you guys published this list of previous encounters that were overlooked. Well, first and foremost, we are scientists. And so we're also big believers in people and believers that a mistake made one day does not condemn someone forever. Um, but again, as scientists, we look at data and we look at patterns. And in that particular instance, there was a clear pattern of behavior that we were able to document and that so many people came to us behind the scenes and spoke of. It was overwhelming. I don't think we were ready nor prepared. We thought, okay, we'll make a petition. Maybe a couple of people will read it and say it and sign it. There was an absolute outcry um, from people from all walks of life um, in the medical profession who said, this is not my experience. This is not representative of me. Yeah. And so we were proud to be able to put the evidence up. It's a powerful um, lesson, a powerful way to illustrate this you know this is not an isolated incident here are 17 other or whatever the number is um which which had a, a rather dramatic impact yeah so this is a fine line we we also you know preach that mistakes are a part of growth and being honest about where you're at is part of growth and never want to scare people from being vulnerable enough to admit that they have some outdated views but in this case the harm to so many people just outweighs and yeah they're happy that we could see justice. Yeah. That's great. And I, I think, I, I don't know much about the details of what what's, you're talking about, but I think it is very, very important to say how much racism plays today. I mean, it is very much out there. I don't need to tell you, but just, you know, our listeners, um, we need, just need to absolutely recognize that this is not, we've made some progress, but it's, I mean, it's so many leaps and bounds far away that, that, you know, the experience of, um, a black or brown position is, is going to be way different than an experience of a, of a white person today. And so I think it's just very, very important to point that out and say that we have made progress, but we are not remotely close to where, where we need to be as a society and as a culture. I agree. And I also, this is the optimist part of me, which is always there. I try to let it lead. <laughs> it says, well, at least it's sort of like when you have someone come in uh, a patient come in and you're like, I have no idea what's wrong with you. That's the scary place. But when you can actually identify, all right, we've got a problem categorizing people by race and treating them differently. We've got a problem um, making folks who are on, some, on the gender spectrum um, unwelcome uh, in clinic. When you can list the, you know, when your diagnosis is done, you can move forward to treatment. And I think that there's so many people who are already ready to do that, that are doing that, and they're coming together. And, and that gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, I can I couldn't agree more. That happens when I'm uh, patients come in to see me as as an oncologist, and and they don't know anything right walking in the door. They just know they have cancer, and then when they leave, they still have cancer, but they're so they feel so much better because they have information. 
And it's just, they, they're kind of, you can see the relief on their face, even though they still have the same diagnosis walking in and out. Um, that piece of information really makes such a tremendous difference for patients and their families. And kind of the same thing as our, our patient of our culture, (laughs) our culture patient, right? Yeah. That it just is kind of the same, you know, we're starting to learn more. And we, the more we know, the more we can help and change things move forward. It's also really helpful um, to have an advocate with you, um, whether that's your spouse or someone who's been through it, because when you are confronted with a reality that, you know, we just got your test results back and you have cancer of any type or, you know, I don't care who you are or how bad or how early it is. That's like a two by four in the forehead. And I know, you know, from my own experiences that um, you... (laughs) you need someone there to take notes because uh, you know, you, you, you don't gather everything. And so, you know, one of the things equal hope has done is really put people in touch with folks who are going in for mammograms or getting questionable results, giving them an advocate to be there with them, to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. And so they know what questions to ask. They know what follow-ups that are necessary, um, what protocols are in place. And that is incredibly valuable to anybody um, but particularly folks who are coming in from, you know, under-resourced communities who are working two or three jobs and, you know, and and having to, to you know, take care of their families and all those other things that occupy our time and our thoughts. Um, and so it's really helpful to have someone there to to listen with you and to be able to ask the right questions. I agree. It's a, I try to tell all my patients, sometimes I have a translator in English, but I'm, I'm trying to break down complex medical things and make it digestible. And sometimes having that extra ear, just like you said, John, I think sometimes people's heads just, their, your mind clicks off. Sometimes it's overwhelming. So it's nice to have that support. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we're coming to a close here. And so um, I would love for you, if you have any thoughts you'd like to share with uh, with our audience, um, you know, just to give, give them a wrap up. And we may, um, as I say to every one of our guests, we may circle back around and come back and have another conversation down the road. Thanks. At this time, anyone who has a hand in the field of medicine, I hope that first and foremost, we are looking inward, doing a check-in in ourselves, and not just in the hand wavy way, like, oh, I'm fine, but really saying, what are the things that I have in place to give me joy each day, to give me fuel to do this work each day, and if our list feels short, stopping right there and doing something about that, and even if it means changing jobs, changing positions, um, moving, whatever it takes, because um, I think the recovery period will be just as trying as the pandemic itself. And the other thing I hope for, for all of us, is that we approach the future with great hope. Because of a psychiatrist, I often love seeing conflict arise in that it exposes really the deep needs that are truly there. And that's been true, of course, in America, It's true across the world. It's all on the table now. So we have this beautiful moment to truly not turn away, but to really honestly look at it with compassion, care, and grace and say, how do we want to be different? And then once we philosophize about that, to move toward the hope, toward the future that we want for ourselves. It's so so true. Doing the internal work is so important. And I there's almost a whole episode on the importance of conflict because conflict is present. Um, I, I come from a very big family, very complex family. And I had conversations throughout my life with 
my family members and used to say, uh, you know, harmony is not the absence of conflicts. You know, I mean, it, conflict is there. And, and is you know, we, I have family members mm-hmm. who believed that as long as we weren't arguing, we were okay. And like, eh, there's a lot of tension here. We got to deal with it. So peace, peace is a lot more than the absence of conflict. It's the presence of harmony. I think Absolutely. It. Ooh, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> the absence of conflict, the absence of conflict should alert us. Well, you should, uh, you should be glad you're not part of my extended family. <laughs> <laughs> I might like it. What did you think? I'm like, tell me what you think. Really? You know, that's how you get the good stuff. Get the deep stuff. I, I'm pretty sure most of them are not listening to the podcast, but uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> if they do, I'll have to answer to this that little segment. <laughs> well, um, Summer, do you care to you have any final, final questions or thoughts? No, no, it's just, it's uh, been tremendous talking to you and I, I just applaud everything you're doing and, um, and keep doing such great work. Um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Jackson, keep, please keep us in mind. If we can partner in any way, let us know. We admire your work, as you know, um, Equal Hope emerged out of Rush. We're an independent entity, but uh, we have close connections and relationships with Rush where you were at one time. And, uh, you know, we hope to, uh, to uh, our, for our paths to cross again soon and, uh, and see where we go from there. Uh, thank you very much, everybody. We will talk to you again shortly. Bye now.